Welcome everybody once again to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese and this week we have a very, very, very special guest star, Mike the gas man Gastineau. You guys might remember him from KJR. You might remember him from his all the great books that he's re- released, including Fear No Man, the one that just came out about the UW Huskies. And uh, we're here with uh, Brian Solman Solak, Richard the Ram Michelson, and we're here to ask you some great questions that uh, that's going to make you think. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you hopefully not cry. We don't want him to cry. Don't make no, him cry, don't. Brian. <laughs> Can I be the judge if the questions are great? Absolutely. Normally people are, are, are just trying to be nice. Say, well, you might remember him from KJR. That's getting truer and truer every day. It's been <laughs> nine years since I left. So so it might remember is really an accurate way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, Gas, man. I'll just start up. I, I left uh, Seattle uh, 14 years ago, but you, you were a, a daily part of my routine. Um, as I, as I, uh, went to and from work from, uh, from North Seattle all the way down to Renton every day and then back, back again, uh, I, I would not have survived that, uh, without, uh, without you and your colleagues over at KJR. So just, uh, just a, just a, a quick, uh, you know, thing that I, I really appreciate the work that you, you and, uh, you did all for all those years and certainly brought a lot of enjoyment to my, uh, to my life personally. You know, I appreciate that. It was never lost on me and, and certainly Graz when Graz and I were together that, um, you know, guy, people in cars, guys and gals in cars were our primary audience. And, you know, whenever you're in that commute, you're stuck. And and we were just, you know, we were just trying to have fun and be entertaining. And I used to joke, joke on the air. I, I never uh, backed this up. I was actually pro anything we could do in terms of putting money into transit. But I used to joke, I said, we should be against putting a nickel into any kind of transit stuff. It, it is to our benefit and our career's benefit that traffic jams continue <laughs> relentlessly in this market. Uh, and, and I was kidding. And, I'm, and you know, but it's funny, we put a lot of money into transit. There's still a lot of traffic jams. But the people in cars, we always were cognizant of that, of people, people stuck in traffic and just trying to have fun. I mean, that's one of the reasons I never... I had a hard time taking any of it very seriously. I mean, I, I was serious about the job and serious about the show, but in terms of games and wins and losses and that, I mean, we, we wanted just to have fun and to laugh and to have a good time. Nobody, particularly at the end of the workday. And again, that's, you know, not everybody was at the end of their workday when I was on, but a vast majority were. Nobody wants to get beat up with a bunch of, you know, whether you call it negative or, or, or just, you know, being really pissed off about something when you're really not, you know, it's, it's like you know, at the end of the day, you just want to have some fun, man. I mean, there's a reason they put happy hour at the end of the work day. And we were, we were just kind of a natural extension of happy hour. <laughs> well said, well said. Uh, Got to start out the show. I want to talk about, we want to talk about your book. It just came out three months ago, fear no man. Uh, before I ask you a quick question about first question about it, I, I probably message you this, but I, I read your book in one day. I, I haven't read a book in one day for over 25 years. I mean, I'm a wazoo coog now, but oh. these guys give me crap about it all the time. But I used to, I grew up being a Husky fan and you just triggered so many memories. And not, I know this is about the 1991 season mainly, but what a great book you wrote and props to you for that. And I'd give you a standing ovation if people could see me, but obviously we're just <laughs> recording right now, but. I think awesome we should all job. stand. 
I, I appreciate <laughs> that. You, you know, somebody said to me something along the lines of, you know, your books are really easy to read. I hope that doesn't insult you. And I said, look, I'm not, I'm not hung up on being, you know, one of the world's great authors here. I, I want to write stories that people like reading. I mean, I, and, and it's a great compliment to hear somebody say, I read that on a flight or I read it in a day or, or whatever. Yeah, I didn't need to reinvent the wheel to tell this story, but it sure was a fun story to tell. The team is iconic. They're one of the great, I mean, if, if, if we're talking Mount Rushmore of Seattle teams, they're without question, they're on it. They're one of the four greatest uh, and they're certainly the greatest in UW history. They're one of the greatest in Pac-12, Pac-10, Pac-8 history. And they're one of the greatest in college football history. You know, you get the further out you get, the more subjective that all gets and the arguments and this and that. But everyone agrees this team fits into the argument for all three of those. Greatest in UW history, one of the greatest in West Coast history, and one of the greatest in college football history. So it was it was fun to relive that season and, uh, and, and to go back and, and – read the news. You know, the funny thing about this guys, um, uh, I'm, I'm doing the research. I love the research part of, of writing probably more than anything. I just love digging up old stuff. There were eight, eight daily newspapers that covered the 91 Huskies in our area. Wow. Eight. Wow. You, you know, think about that. And I mean, so there was just and a lot of great writers. So, so much stuff to go through and so many great stories that came out of that. You know, that was a, that was a big part of it. You, you know, the, the media landscapes changed so drastically, but when you think about that, that at most practices, they didn't they didn't all go to every practice, but at every most practices, you had a reporter from the Times, from the PI, from the News Tribune, uh, the Everett Herald, uh, the Journal American, uh, the Bremerton Sun, uh, the Valley Daily News, and uh, I'm forgetting one, but, but I mean, you know, did I say News Tribune? I mean, from from everywhere. You, you know, and, it, it was neat that that part of it was really fun because I know most of those people and going back and reading their thoughts and their opinions and the anecdotes and some of the anecdotes that they dug up that were maybe a paragraph in a notebook column. You know, I turned into a thousand words. I'm like, this is a pretty cool story. Let's go back and see who remembers this. And like any team, there were a lot of good stories like that, but uh, the research phase of it was really fun. What what inspired you to do it? I mean, obviously it was a great team, but I mean, did someone ask you to write about it? I mean, or did the light bulb click one day? I mean, tell us how. It- I, yeah, I'd thought about it for a while, and I uh, I had kind of a I got to know a guy uh, named Andrew Brzezanski who is uh, uh, with uh, um, UW Press. He's an editor. He's a terrific editor. He edited this book, and it was so much fun to work with him. Uh, and um, he and I were talking and I, and, and I was actually doing something for him. I was doing what they call peer review. They, 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 they give you a, a, a manuscript that somebody has written. They don't tell you who's written it. They say, well, we need to read through this and tell us what you think of it. Be very honest. And I, I went through this and was very honest with him about what I thought about it. And, um, you know, they pay you a little, not much, but they pay you a little to do that. And as we were winding in our conversation, I said, you know, Andrew, I've actually written a couple of books and I've been, I'd love to hook up with a publisher and, he said, well, you know, what's funny is we're, we're looking to get a sports title. They had never really done a sports title. And I had a couple other ideas about UW, but they said, let, let me, let me start with the one I think's the best. And I just started talking about the 91 team. And at the time it was, I think 2018. And I said, you know, by the time we get this thing written and edited and, and put together, I go, it'll be close enough to 2021. It could be a, you know, nice kind of tie in with the 30th anniversary of the team. So again, going back, I mean, the team was iconic. Uh, somebody needed to do this story and uh, to have something we can have on a shelf so that 30 years from now, when everybody's gone, 
uh, who's a part of this story or 40 years now, it's still there. Hey, you want to read about the greatest team ever read this book here. And uh, you know, that, that part of it's really, uh, really gratifying to me. It's why I enjoy writing books is there's a, there's a permanence to them. I, I loved the radio business. And I still do, but it kind of disappears at the end every day. You, you know, people don't, you know, I, I didn't, at least you, you don't come home and, Ooh, I'm going to listen to the tape of my show. You know, maybe I should have, maybe it would have made me better, but I just had no interest in that. But books are different. Books stay on a shelf and they get handed down and they get given from, from older people to younger people here. I want you to have this book. And, you know, I, I don't know if this book rises to that level, but I hope it does. And it's, uh, it was, it was really a blast doing it. Hey, yeah, I, I got a oh, question go for you, gas man. Sorry, Brian, I'm, I'm going to jump in here. Um, you, you mentioned your research, just walk us through a little bit of, uh, of what, what went through that. Obviously, you have a, a deep history in the Pacific Northwest. I think in the book, you, you mentioned that you and your wife, uh, I'm assuming you were relatively newly married at that point, moved to, to Washington State just in time to watch this team blow out teams or, you know, yeah. Saturday after Saturday. So tell us a little bit about the research and how you how you went about gathering all these great little little uh, anecdotes and vignettes. That, that was like the best part for me because, I mean, I know the – I know the broad brush strokes. I didn't know any of the other stuff. I spent uh, three or four eight-hour days in the UW archive room, which is, you know, it sounds fancy, It's and it's fine. It's just a giant storage closet at the top of the press box in Husky Stadium. And, <laughs> and it was like, I'm going, I'm like, oh, this is going to be kind of exciting. And the, 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 uh, Jeff Beck told the sports information director, walked me up there, said, okay, there's the bathroom, there's a drinking fountain, don't lock yourself out, call me if you need anything. He took off. And, and I'm in there with you know, 70 or 80 years of newspaper clippings. I mean, they don't have a lot of the new stuff because it's digitized, so they're not bothering with that. Uh, but just go, and so I started going through stuff. And, you know, originally I thought this book will be about the 91 team. And as I got deeper into it, I started realizing, you know, you really, to tell this story, you got to go back a couple of years. And then as I got even more into it, I'm like, you know, it really needs to begin with the, the Orange Bowl game where the Huskies thought they had won a national championship. They walked off the field that night and thought, we're going to get one of the two votes, and they didn't. Uh, and and when I talked, the first time I talked to Carol James, I said, was was Don upset about that? And I talked to Don about it a little bit, and Don was always, he downplayed any of that stuff. No, nah, it was fine. I got my championship done, man. Um, and Carol said he was. Said, yeah, he wasn't like, you know, it didn't ruin his life or anything, but that there was a, a stretch of time where he was really bummed out uh, that uh, that he didn't get one. And, 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 you know, as I say to people, part of the reason he didn't complain about 84 as much is because his best friend in coaching was Lavelle Edwards. I mean, they were they were tight. Right. And here Lavelle's teams won the national championship. Many people felt that was kind of a, a chump deal. Uh, many people think BYU, come on, there, there's no way. I mean, Washington would have destroyed them. Don didn't want to get too far into that, though, because here Lavelle's his good friend and it's the peak of his career. So why dump on him? Um, so the, the, the research came from a lot of time in that archive room. And then I spent, you know, I interviewed 30 different people, interviewed most of them two or three times. And, and that's always fun too. I always say it's a little bit like, like, uh, being a, a, a detective cause you're taking, you're taking two and three or four different people's view of the same story and seeing how much it matches up. And, and that's how you kind of get there. Cause it's 30 years, man. There were a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys whose memory I had to jog a little bit. Like, no, no, they'd go, wait a minute, was that the year we played Nebraska at home? No, 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 that's the year you played Nebraska at Lincoln. You know, the, the mind wears down after that many years. I, and then you, I liked how you broke it down year by year, kind of. You, then you talked about 1985. 
you, you mentioned that Oregon State game. I, I have to bring this up because I was a 13-year-old little punk. My dad took me to the game, and, oh, that was so awful how they lost to Oregon State. <laughs> I, I mean, weren't we favored by so many points? And was, yeah. was this was this like the beginning of the, kind of a demise of the Huskies, do you think? I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, why did why did you continue to talk about each year by year before you led up to 1991? Well, just to kind of show the bridge that was built, because, again, after 84 – you know, again, they were they were just kind of crushed that they didn't get one of the championships. And then 85 happens, and they're very pedestrian. They're a very average team, and they lose to Oregon State, for crying out loud. How, how does that happen? Yeah. Uh, and then 86, they come back, they're a little better, and they go to the Sun Bowl, and they get annihilated by Alabama. So what I kind of like about this is, is, you know, the Hollywood version, you know, they lose in 84, and so they just they come back, and they work harder, and they win it all in 85. No, the truth is – they went on a, a, about a four-year slide, and now, mm-hmm. you know, comparatively speaking, you know, this this wasn't so so bad. You know, it wasn't like they went to two and ten, but by the standards they had set, it was unacceptable. And after the Sun Bowl, you know, that that's the legendary uh, uh, story where, uh, like, in the locker room, supposedly Don James is talking to his coaches, saying, "We got to get faster." We, we got beat by a team that was faster than us at every single position. Don was an old Midwest guy from Massillon, Ohio, you know, a, a, an Ohio State fan growing up and a, and a, a Midwest football fan. And so you, you recruit big kids. And the only thing better than a big kid is a kid who's bigger. You know, that's all you always size, big, bulk. And Don had a real epiphany that they go, we got to we got to start thinking about speed and getting faster. And uh, and then the 87 team. Um, you know, again, kind of the same thing. They, they sputter and they struggle. They're not quite as good as they want to be. 88, they don't even go to a bowl game. They, they blow a big lead in the Apple Cup, don't get a bowl invitation. And uh, and, and that's when Don then makes the, the really important decision. Listening to advice from Gary Pinkle. Imagine this. Gary Pinkle is the offensive coordinator and says to Don, you know what? We got to do some different things on offense. What we're doing you know, we got some speed now, but we're still running Midwest football. I back, you know, one or two receivers. You, you know, the, the, the way that was described was, you know, Don's offensive philosophy was, you know, run the ball, be careful with the ball, punt the ball, you know, be, be good at punting, play great defense, and wait for the other guy to make a mistake. And that worked for a lot of years. They won a lot of games doing that. But Pinkle saw how the game was going said, we need a new mind in here. We need to think about what we're doing on offense, and the guy we should go get is Keith Gilbertson. Imagine an offensive coordinator going in and telling the head coach, we should go get another offensive guy in here. You, you know, the, the security with which Gary Pinkle has conducted his life, you know, the idea of I'm securing myself, man. I can even recommend a guy to come in and help me. I'm, I'm, I'm that secure in my, in my knowledge. And they brought Gilby in. And, and Gilby was running the, the full-on spread offense uh, that had started in California high school ball in the early 70s. And Washington got into that. And, and it, that is when that, that was when the offense changed and they started moving the ball. And then middle of the 89 season is when Lambeau convinces Don to really dial up the aggressiveness on defense. And, and we're going to blitz on any down in any situation. We're not blitzing in blitzing situations. We might blitz on first and 10. We might blitz on 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 any, any down, any down and distance. And and they got burned occasionally, but they were just so – they had such good talent. And they, they brought that out for the Oregon State game in 89. And then they roll through the Apple Cup and they destroy Florida in the Freedom Bowl. And that's when it all starts. 
it, it's that Oregon State game and the Apple Cup, and they they wallop Florida in the Freedom Bowl, and they come back in '90 and they they roll through that and then into '91. So, kind of a I guess, I guess a long answer to the question there, but that's that's kind of Brian where where it came from. The idea of as I got into it, I realized I had to tell some of the backstory to set up what happened and why it happened and why it was important. How much of a role did Dick Baird have in it? Obviously, he's a recruiting coordinator, but do you think he played a big role in creating this team, um, this national championship team in 1991? That's the biggest thing I got out of the book was understanding how important Dick was to the program, and not just in 91, but during the whole time he was there. Yeah. Dick plays himself off as this jovial guy and kind of a clown, and he laughs at stuff. He's always a Dick knows football really well, and he knows football talent. He knew talent. He knew how to, and he knew how to connect with talent. And, you know, I, I thought you know, the thing that I learned uh, that I didn't know that I thought was most interesting in this book is you know, how does Don James come to hire Dick Baird? You, know, you couldn't find two more different people. Don yeah. is, is what, did I, what did I say in the book? Don is, is, is you know, buttoned down and, and, uh, and, and laces tied and Dick is buttons missing and laces untied. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're just so different. Yeah. And, and, you know, Don was, uh, you're looking for somebody to kind of come in and help him organize recruiting. And he got advice from of all people, Lenny Wilkins, okay. you know, who would Don listen to? You'd have to be a championship caliber guy for Don to really listen to you. You'd have to be a guy who you were, well, he respected Lenny. Lenny was a champion. And Lenny said to him, there's this guy, Dick Baird, uh, and he runs my basketball camps. And I think Don actually already knew about Dick, and he called Lenny to see what he thought. And Lenny said, he'll, he'd be great. He, he connects with our kids. He keeps everybody busy. He's got a great sense of humor. He knows how to run our practices. And, and so Dick comes in as a graduate assistant, a 38-year-old graduate assistant, making no money, and, uh, and works the first year uh, doing that. And Don says, I'm going to bring you on as a full-time staff member. They make him the recruiting coordinator. And Dick's impact on this program is is incalculable and don saw something in dick and in his personality that don knew he'd never have dick identified with you don was the ceo don was in charge and and student athletes and their parents they want to know that they want to know there's a guy in charge but dick identified with them he he knew their culture he got their music he got their jokes uh he 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 just he had a jovial side to him that Don was never going to have. And, and they complemented each other so well in that way. And, and I came away from this book and, and from all the research really full of respect for, for Dick, for Gilby, for Lambeau, all of the, you know, Don's style. I'd never really thought about this until I wrote the book. You know, Don was the tower coach. His lieutenants had to be good. They had to be really good. And they were. And Don trusted them. He didn't just give them a, a blank check, but he listened to them and he took their ideas. And, and, and you know, they, they said yeah, he was never in meetings like, no, nope, we're going to do it my way. He was like, well, if you want to do it that way, explain to me why you want to do it that way. Explain to me how we're going to do that. He, he gave a lot of power to his, to his assistants. Uh, and in this case, the talent in 91 was unbelievable. The coaching talent was unbelievable too. It all kind of came together in a perfect storm. Hey, well hey Gasman, um, uh, you probably know this, but our listeners might not. Um, the the Huskies in that 1989 Freedom Bowl against Florida, which is my first bowl game memory, by the way, 
is watching that game. Um, and I'm watching the Huskies just mash uh, Florida to pieces. Um, but you want to tell our, our listeners who the, the star running back for Florida was that year? The greatest running back in Florida history, most would say Emmett Smith. You know, he Emmett mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, and, and he he was he was gigantic. And and you know, the funny thing about that is, you know, Florida scores on their first offensive possession. And there's a couple of great quotes from James Clifford in there about that. James said, you know, all week leading up the Freedom Bowl, all we talked about is Emmett. Get Emmett. Emmett's going to have the ball. Everybody run to Emmett. We want everyone on Emmett all the time. Emmett, Emmett, Emmett. So on first down, the quarterback fakes a pitch to Emmett. And Jay Clifford says, all 11 of us went for Emmett. He goes, if we'd <laughs> had an extra guy on the field, he would have gone for Emmett too. The quarterback, meanwhile, is kind of lottie down around the left side and goes 67 yards for a touchdown. So they had to correct that. But the rest of the game, they just dominated to the point that Clifford remembered saying to Emmett at the start of the third quarter, you're still in the game? Because everybody <laughs> knew everybody knew he was going to go to the NFL. And in a yeah. game like the Freedom Bowl, there is no sense risking an injury if you're a running back, if you're going to the yeah. NFL. And especially if you're getting your ass handed to you, which they were. Yeah. So, so James says to him, what are you still? This is crazy. You're going to get hurt. You're, and and by the next series, he had taken himself out. And, you know, people going to go. Oh, Emmett quit. Oh, yeah, Emmett made a smart business decision. There was no <laughs> sense in being in that game. It, you know, who would care if Florida had come back and won the Freedom Bowl? Yeah. You know, nobody. But if Emmett had gotten hurt in the middle of that, and he hadn't been able to have his NFL career, you, you know, so that stuff happens all the time. But I, I love that. So what are you doing out here? You're going to get hurt. You show the coaches to take you out, man. It's over. And uh, and it was. And they 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 just, at halftime of that game, too, I think the Huskies, gosh, they're up like 24 to 7 or something. And Bob Rondo runs into Keith Gilbertson, and Gilby's all ticked off. Oh, it should be, we should have at least two more touchdowns. This is unacceptable. <laughs> kind, of a, a, kind of an idea how they were going to be. They were going to be relentless, and they just were not going to give up uh, against teams. And, the Freedom Bowl is a real interesting game because, again, it it, it was an example to everyone. It's kind of on the national setting, like, watch out for these guys. You know, all of a sudden, they've kind of put it together up there in the Northwest. So keep an eye out on this team. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was astounded at the hin- kind of the hinge point of those, like, four weeks, right? Like, um, they get run over – well, not run over, passed over by Arizona State in that game in 89, and then – by the end of the season, they are a defensive juggernaut. I mean, like what a, what about a, like what a flip of a flip of the switch. And I'm yeah. just wondering if, you know, you, you've been around Seattle sports for a long time. Um, can you think of any other team in Seattle or West, you know, in Washington sports, you know, history that has basically finally figured themselves out and then just gone on to dominate? Um it's hard to come up with one that's as, as as stark as that one. But again, you know, the Arizona State game, it was that morning after that game where they met Lambeau had been had been saying all along, we have got to be more aggressive. We've we're, and and what was funny was so James comes in that morning after the Arizona State game and says, Jim, we're gonna do it your way. We're gonna we're gonna be more aggressive, we're gonna blitz more often, we're gonna take advantage of our guys. Lambeau leaves that meeting and he's got James Clifford in his office and Clifford's saying, coach, we're out there and we're thinking too much. No one's playing football. We're thinking about all this stuff we got to do. And, and, and Lambeau says to him, 
it's been taken care of. <laughs> Don't worry, but you're going to see him practice. It's been taken care of. And, and that was, you know, they, they all, the defense was so sky high about the idea of we're going to, you were going to come at you from all angles. Uh, and that's where, you know, that's when the defensive backs started using the phrase fear no man, because, you know, Larry Slade was our coach says, guys, look, we're going to blitz so often and so frenetically that you're going to be in single coverage a lot. So you're going to have to be ready for that. And that was, it was Dana Hall who said, look, we fear no, we got to fear no man. We're on an Island. You got to fear no man. And and that's where that came from. And then that anecdote comes back the the couple of nights before the Rose bowl in 91 or 90 on, on the 92 Rose bowl. But um, it, it, you know, I, it's fun when a championship team does get rolling. You know, you can think about the Seahawks super bowl team, the one that won, you know, it all kind of started the year before. You know, they kind of started rolling and they had that great game in Atlanta. They didn't, they didn't finish the deal, but it's like, yeah, they, they look like they're rising right now. You, you know, Matt Hasselbeck always said something kind of interesting that the when the Hawks got going in his era in, in like 04, 05, and into the 06 Super Bowl, it was either the end of the 04 or the 03 season when they were eliminated from the playoffs the first uh, first Sunday in December. They're eliminated. And, and Hasselbeck always said, those next three weeks is when our Super Bowl run started because we really took those games seriously. I think they won all three of them. Didn't matter. They weren't going to the playoffs. But that they a few things started clicking. And, and so it is often that. And when, you, when you're putting together a look at a championship team, you often got to go back a little further to see when, when did this start? It usually doesn't start in, in the year that it happens. It usually you have to go back a year or two earlier to see when the momentum started building. Uh, 1991 season. You, you, I mean, I know you came out here in 91, but before you moved out here, were you aware of the, how good the Washington Huskies were? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were, you know, when, when you'd get a West coast game, I always, I, I was always fascinated with, with uh, Seattle uh, and, and with Husky stadium, you'd see a late afternoon game of the shadow. What I remember the most is you'd see a game at Husky stadium. The shadows were so long. You, you know, because the you're so far north in the sun and the anglers, and God, look at how long that shadow is there. And I mean, as a kid, I remember watching. Uh, as a as a freshman at Indiana, uh, uh, Indiana played Washington and beat them. I always used to tease Don. I said, you know, I don't know, greatest coach ever, zero and two against Lee Corso. I'm not sure I buy it, Don. We, we did we did we did a roast to Don James one night and. Uh, and I said, you lost to Lee Corso twice. If we're roasting the greatest coach in, in, in state history, what time is Frosty Westering showing up? Let's, let's do the right guy here. And, and, uh, and Don, he had a great sense of humor, and, but he didn't like losing. He, he didn't like being reminded of that. But um, so, yeah, I was, you, you were aware of Washington, certainly. I, I, I think, you know, people talk about being tucked up in the upper left-hand corner and the, and the East Coast bias, which is more a time zone thing than anything, especially when I was growing up. You know, all, there weren't that many games on TV. You know, now most games are on TV in some way, shape, or form. So there, there really isn't as much of a – there's certainly no uh, excuse for, for, for not being able to see any team that you want to see. But, but Washington was – you know, they were good every year. I mean, so I remember watching the, the Orange Bowl game. Uh, when they want him in the the Rose Bowl, I mean, shoot, it, it's funny. My my uh, my brothers, when it would come time for the Rose Bowl, were always like, "Well, you know what? You know, we got to be Big Ten solidarity here." I'm like, "Man, I, 
well, we're from Indiana. We get our asses kicked all the time by these teams. <laughs> I'm not rooting for Iowa or Michigan or Ohio State. I can't stand them. I'm rooting for whoever's coming out of the Pac-10 at the time of the Pac-8. So I would always root for Washington whenever they were in the Rose Bowl against any of these guys. I want them to annihilate Michigan or Iowa or anybody. You know, I, I had no love lost there. So I, I certainly had a had a, a, a real respect and a knowledge of what was going on out here. Okay. Okay. Um, lots of great moments during the 91 season. And I mean, during your research or perhaps when you came out and were working for KJR, do you have a favorite moment or two during the 91 season you care to share or, or, or info you came across when you were researching the book? For me personally, it would be the Arizona games. It's the first game I ever went to Husky stadium. Okay. Uh, first time I ever saw them play at Husky stadium. And I just remember the start of the game and I wrote about it, you know, about Entman just, basically ending that game in three plays. I mean, it was, it was over or in two plays, really. The third play, the, the George Malalulu calls timeout after getting flattened on the first two plays. Um, and, and that, you know, in, and see, you know, by then they had won the Nebraska game, which, you know, I'd lived, I'd worked in Nebraska for three years in the eighties. So I was really interested. I, I moved here in June of 91 and they go down to Stanford. They, they win the first game. Then they're going out to Nebraska. Well, I was really interested in that game because I, I knew a little bit about Nebraska, uh, having lived out there uh, and, and worked out there in the sports media business. And, and so that game, I, mean, I just remember thinking that is just a spectacular game. So writing about that game was a lot of fun. Uh, but and then they come back, they, they play Kansas State. I didn't go to that game. They play Arizona the next week. That's the first game I go to in person. And I just was blown away at how dominant they were. Um, and, and you can just see it. it's like, this is a championship caliber team. I mean, this, this is really, really a great team. And, uh, and they were, so I, I would say that. And, and then, uh, you know, seeing them, like I say, seeing them the way they want in Nebraska and, and you know, it's funny. And I did all the research on everything. I don't remember as much about the Cal game. You know, I do now because I do all the research and watch the video several times and talk to everybody about it. In the moment, I don't remember as much. I remember the Rose Bowl. I remember the Apple Cup a lot, but I, I don't remember that one. And that Cal game was it's spectacular. Next time you've got two hours on your hands, pull up the YouTube version of that and watch that game. That's a great football game. And 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 they were lucky to come away with that one. I mean, they, they were one bad break away from seeing it all come unravel in that game. You know, I um I have that that's actually my favorite moment in that in that whole season was well probably the, 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 there's two moments for me but um it's it's the moment that Bino Bryant puts his foot in the ground on that mm. cut on mm. that uh, on that on that zone I think it was a zone play to the right I could be wrong yeah. in the direction but it's I remember the zone play and he sees this I mean like it is not a big hole this is not you know like any any running back can stroll through this hole this is this is not a big one and he is so fast and he just puts his foot in the ground and goes and it was like an, almost identical to the play a little bit earlier that the cow running back had done um, like two plays yeah two plays yeah. earlier i mean yeah, be, yeah. Be, i mean it was just like what <laughs> yeah bino's answer to that that's such a critical play I mean, that's a huge play you know how do you answer when you get punched and you know, well how about we answer with a 65 yard touchdown of our own yeah. and and that that I, I thought that, at, you know, in, in looking at it and then talking to guys, when, when Cal has that big run for the touchdown, it just was such a strong deja vu to the UCLA game 
1990 that they that they end up mm-hmm. losing. You know, when UCLA has the big long touchdown run in the first quarter, but that kind of sets the tone for the whole game. Yeah. There's a lot of deja vu in that. Like, oh, and again, that's you blitz. You run that blitz a lot. You leave the back end open, and oh boy, you know, look what happens. And and for Bino to answer a couple of plays later, it steadied the ship. They were taken on water, and it immediately steadied the ship. And they're they're able to patch the hole. And go, okay, we're all right. This isn't UCLA last year. This is Cal this year. We just answered the punch. We're going to be fine. I was going to say that the uh, it was it was it was impressive to me that. Um, it was running plays that were the, the Huskies' Achilles heel. It was always a big run yeah. that seemed to to, 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 to to wreck the ship in 90. And then the next year in in, uh, in 92, it was the, the long runs that, in the Arizona game and uh, against Michigan in the Rose Bowl. And I think even uh, Washington State had a few long runs in the snow, in the snow bowl. And, and then right. Yeah, so the next I, the next year, yeah, yeah. Well, and again, that that's part and parcel to again running running what they would call the the zero blitz, where you basically would would leave the back end wide open. And so yeah. if 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 a running back penetrates that first line of defense, that there's nothing back. And and you know, my, my one of my favorite anecdotes, and and you know, one of the the great things about this book for me was, you know, I got to spend some time with Jim Lambright before Jim died. Uh, we, had, we had a great lunch together and, and Alzheimer's was, was doing what it does, you know, such a terrible thing, but he was really good on big picture stuff. And he remembered a lot of the big picture items and, and, and he remembered, you know, that Don used to get on it because after the UCLA game, Don said, listen, I don't mind blitzing. We're not doing zero blitzes anymore. You know, that's just, it's, we, we're leaving. We got to check out of it. If we're in it, you, you know, we got to be really judicious about this. So they'd still run zero blitz occasionally. And Don would say to Lambo, hey, I, I thought I said no zero blitzes. And Lambo would go, yeah, 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 our guy screwed up. He didn't hear the call. I'm going to make him run extra laps at practice. Don't worry. And it was like, no, it was Lambo calling zero because he loved to blitz. He loved the chess <laughs> match of it and and and, and loved to, to, to try and outfox the other guy. So, But they were susceptible to that. They More than long passes, what you were susceptible to is if a guy broke through the line, there was nobody there. I mean, the, the you know you see some runs and be like man this this guy's the only guy in the TV picture right now there's nobody near him. <laughs> Would you mind sharing a moment or two a favorite moment about Don James outside of the '91 season? It seemed like you had a good relationship with him on on the air. Yeah, you know working with Don was was a blast. Um, you know he when when everything kind of came unraveled at the end of '92 and through '93 and the investigation that you know. You look back on it now; it's almost quaint when you see some of the things that happened in the in the you know in the years following. But they did some things wrong, and and they got slapped pretty good. Don felt that you know Bill Gerberding, who was the president at the time of UW, and and he and Don didn't get along. You know, the the, the toughest thing a football coach faces is if you got a president who gets angry that you're getting too much attention. Because the fact of the matter is, the greatest university president in history is not getting as much attention as the most average football coach in history. It just, it just, it's how things are wired. Most presidents know that and understand that. That's just part of the deal. Um, Gerberding didn't. They didn't like that Don got a lot of attention. They, they, uh, he was upset at Don for some, some other things. And so he didn't back him enough. Don just didn't feel like he had the backing of the university administration when this all went down. 
Uh, and then when the sanctions came down and they were they were ridiculous how harsh they were to the point. And I think this is the only time this has ever happened. The sanctions against UW originally were so draconian that the NCAA of all people stepped up and said, you can't do this, Pac-10. You cannot. This is ridiculous. These are, these are, it's too much for what they've done. And it was the NCAA who, who said, no, no, no. They actually were able to lower some of the, the things to it. So anyway, so, so get back to your question. So now Don leaves in August, and two weeks later, he's in a radio studio with me, and we're hosting a college football talk show. Uh, and it was a little awkward. You know, Don was, was still kind of in coaching mode, and I didn't know him all that well. Well, I got to know him over the next three years, and I got to know Carol over the next three years. And, and probably the best thing I would say outside of the 91 season is, is watching how those two interacted and how they took care of each other and how much they loved each other. And it was, you know, I was, a, I was still a, a young married guy, and it really became to me an idea of I'm, I'm going to conduct my life in this manner. I'm going to I'm going to speak well always of my partner and I'm going to be a part and, and, and help. And and, and th- that influence to, to me, it, it came from them, from watching them. It was just a, a you know, and Carol, Carol has a lie that she uses that I, I just it's so sweet. And it cracks me up, which says she goes, she goes, you know, we started going together when we were 14 you know, I mean, it's a lifelong love between those two. And um, and and it was neat to see it up close and see how Carol was very protective of him and, and same way him to her. And and that that's probably the thing I remember the most is just being inspired by their relationship. Completely, forget football. Forget it. Don, Don would have been successful doing a lot of things. He was really successful as a football coach. But he was successful as a husband, and that's you know that's something that anybody can emulate. I could never go coach a football team. Good lord, we we'd be in dear dire straits if I was coaching. But I can try and be the kind of husband that he was, and 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 try and be the right kind of guy. And and that's uh, that's something that uh, that that I took to heart. Hey, I I got to compliment you on um on on how to how to uh, not bury the lead, but like start off strong in your book. I loved the introduction. I, I read it like four times. Um, how in the world did you get, of all people, Nick Saban to write the intro to this book? You know, that comes down to, to Don and Carol again. Uh, you know, Nick played for Don at Kent State, and they stayed close over the years. And Don, uh, uh, you know, passed away well, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And Nick, on a pretty regular basis, calls Carol just to make sure she's doing okay. And, and oh. yeah, you know, are you all right? Everything? And, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if it's once a year or once every six months, it's not every week, but it's often enough. And, you know, I talked to Carol, I said, you think he'd write an intro for the book? And she goes, yeah, I bet he would ask him. And I started there. I said, yeah, I probably should get Carol to ask. And then I'm like, you know, I've had Carol do enough for me. And so people say, how did you get Nick Saban? Oh, I called the sports information director in Alabama. And I said, Hey, I told him who I was. Uh, and I told him about the project, and he, he says, well, coach usually wants to do things that involve Don James, so give me a day or two, let me get back to you. And, and <laughs> what, what, Nick, what Nick ended up doing, and this I thought really says a lot about him, is uh, you know, I, I talked to the SID, and he and I are going back and forth, and I said, listen, let's make this as easy as possible. for It was middle of summer, so there's not a lot going on, so let's make this as easy as possible why don't you get me 20 minutes on the phone with him and I'll interview him. I'll record it. I'll interview him and I'll ask him a bunch of stuff about Don 
and then I'll write, you know, the foreword and, and, you know, ghostwrite it basically for Nick. And then I'll send it to him and he can make any little changes he wants. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We all agree. That's a good idea. Let's make this easy. So I call Nick. We talk for a while. He was delightful. He was great. Gave me a bunch of good stuff. I said, I'm going to get this written and I'll send it to you in a week. So I put a, I put a lot of effort into it and really wanted it to be good. I send it to him. Like a day later, I get a note from him. I've thought about it. I need to write this myself, which I thought was, <laughs> I, I thought, A, I'm like, oh, geez, you didn't like my draft. But, but no, I, I thought, I, I think Nick was like, you know, this means enough to me that I want this to be 100% my own words. And even though I had used most of Nick's words in writing it, it came out better that he wrote it and, and, and wrote it from the heart. And I, I thought, of all things, I made it harder for him. I ended up adding a layer to it. But it, it says a lot about him and how much he thought of Don that the ghostwritten version would have been fine. Nobody would have known, but he would have known. And that meant enough to him to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this myself. I appreciate the work you did, but I'm going to go ahead and do this myself. Right on. Yeah. I was just astounded by him. I mean, yeah. I, I don't like the team he coaches for, but um, I gained a whole lot of a whole, whole lot more respect for him than I ever had before. Yeah. He's um, you know, people don't like people that win all the time. It's in our nature. We want to see people <laughs> knocked down. What did yeah. Bill Belichick ever do to anybody? Okay, I know Spygate, blah, blah, blah. But all he's done is win. That's what's irritated people. Nobody cares about inflated footballs or secret cameras stuck somewhere. It's like he wins too much. You know, Nick's the same way. You know, and that's why he and I think Belichick, they still talk pretty regularly. You know, there's a pretty exclusive club of guys who have dominated this sport. And, and that's what wears us out uh, as sports fans. But I, I, I think Nick's the real. I mean, I know Don thought the world of him. And and I know that Nick talked to Don like five days before Don died. I mean, that's in the that's in the intro, you know, where he says, I, I told him we were getting ready to run, I think it was progressive sprints because it was Monday. And the Don laughed. And you think that might have been the last time Don laughed in his life. I mean, you know, Don, he was in a lot of pain, he had pancreatic cancer. He's five days away from dying. And Nick says, well, coach, it's Monday, so we're running progressive sprints. And I think that you imagine what that meant to Don to hear, you know, a guy who he had coached say, "No, we're still doing it the way you did it. We, we, we do things the way you taught us. Well, and, and the fact that Don James had to sell Nick Saban on being a coach, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. that was astounding to me. Like I've never heard that story before. If, if, if Don didn't talk Nick into coaching, then Nick Saban is doing late night TV commercials in West Virginia, pitching used cars to people. I mean, and, and I'm not being facetious. Here. That's what he wanted to go do. He, right. he had gotten a business degree. He's like, I'm going to be an automotive guy. I'm going to have auto dealerships. You make good money, man. Those guys make good. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to have a family and I'm, I'm going to live in West Virginia where I'm from. Everything's going to be great. And Don's like, hey, on a minute. Why don't you give this a try? And, you know, all these years later, that was, uh, that was, you talk about identifying talent. And it, it, was, it wasn't just a shot in the dark. If Don said, he goes, Nick was this one of the smartest guys I had ever coached. He just, he understood what we were trying to do. And, and he, he studied stuff and he would bring things up and he, he had that mind. Because most coaches will tell you that, you know, they love all their players, but that a lot of players wouldn't make great coaches. Don knew from the start that, no, Nick, Nick could be a really good coach. And he was right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Would you mind sharing a couple of favorite moments in your 22 years at KJR, whether 
it's Mariners, Seahawks, Sonics. I mean, you have a couple of good stories you don't mind sharing with our audience. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I'll talk about anything you want. I, I love all the, the, the spotlight on the book, but uh, I, I, I got lots of opinions. I'm sitting up here on Whidbey Island, man. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I got a bunch of opinions. I could talk till midnight. Um, favorite KJR moments. Certainly uh, the, the, the 95, 96 year. In August of 95, um, you know, the Sonics have decided to keep George Carl, but they've had back-to-back flameouts in the playoffs. Uh, the, the Seahawks are in just a malaise. This 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 just five, uh, eight and eight, eight and eight, eight, and they're just boring. The Mariners are the Mariners. Oh, look, they're 13 and a half games back. And suddenly lightning struck this little city. And the Mariners catch fire. And, and that's it's just the most remarkable thing I've ever seen, you know, for what they did over the last eight weeks of that season and into the playoffs. And, and then that all ends. And, I mean, it would have been great if it had ended with a World Series championship, but it ends pretty memorable fashion. And about the time it ends, here come the 95-96 Sonics playing in a brand-new arena, playing in Key Arena. And, and the buzz and the excitement in that building night in and night out was just indescribable. It was the hottest place in town. And they won, and they won relentlessly, and they were so good. Uh, and then they get into the spring, and, and, and they get all the way to the sixth game of the NBA Finals. That's probably my favorite time at KJR. I mean, covering winners is a lot more fun than covering teams that aren't winning. And, and for me, that was just a blast. I, I would say the 2006 Seahawks in the run to the Super Bowl with Hasselbeck and that crew. You know, I would left by the time 2014 happened. So I, I viewed that more as a fan and I loved it like everybody did and, and, and then couldn't believe what happened the next year. But, um, the, you know, the, the, the overriding thing about KJR was, you know, the, the, the talent level was so high and, we, we fought, we were like brothers a little bit. We'd fight occasionally and we didn't always get along with each other, but there was a, I always felt at least there was a lot of mutual you know, respect. I mean, when, when, as our, as our team built, and as we started delivering ratings and delivering excitement, and then the city was getting excited about sports and a lot of great things were happening. And we just had so much fun. I mean, you know, what we talked about on the air you know, that was how we were living. We were going out at night. We were having a lot of laughs. We were, you know, we lived hard. We had a lot of fun doing it. Our thing from the start, for most of us, I think really for all, we wanted to be out with the fans. You know, a lot of sports radio guys want to hang out with the athletes, and that's fine. I'm not going to say which one's better. I, I always wanted, and I was influenced by Graz a little bit with this. I wanted to hang out with the fans. That's who's listening to my show. The athletes aren't listening to the show. I wanted to hang out with them and see what they were thinking about things. That's why early on, you know, I put into my contract, or I actually asked them to, and they, they agreed. I, I got season tickets to, to all the sports teams. It's, look, I want to go to the games and, and, and experience them the way people who listen to my show experience them. If I sit up in the press box and and – complained to everybody else in the press about how miserable my boss is, which is like the thing that you do when you're in the press um, and then go down to the locker room and then talk to all the players. And we had guys who were doing that. You know, I'd rather be out in the crowd. I'd rather be, uh, uh, you, you know, mocking John Elway in the kingdom or, 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 <laughs> you, you know, booing the Yankees at the kingdom or at Safeco field or T-Mobile. Park. That, that to me, 
that was what made that station great in its heyday was all of us kind of bought into that idea of, of spending time with the fans and being accessible and doing, you know, I, I, there was one year we, we did a, a t-shirt and I lost it somewhere along the way, but we did it we called the gas, gas man's world tour. I think I did 107 bar shows wow. in one year. You know, which we were out all the time, and and I was I was younger and sturdier, so I could do that. <laughs> but that's that's what I remember about it was, was I, I I just felt we were a natural extension of fans, and and for me, sports radio got boring for me, and and I'm just as much to blame as anybody because I kind of bought into the philosophy. We all started talking to each other, and we stopped talking to the fans. And what I mean is, we stopped taking calls. And part of that was society too. People don't talk as much on the phone as they used to. People would rather text. You know, I, I kind of laugh when I hear radio stations now and, and I haven't been on the air for nine years. I haven't been in the hot seat for nine years. So I don't want to come off as, oh, I, it was so much better when I was doing it. But I laugh when I hear them reading their text line. I'm like, you know, that's boring. You know, I'd rather hear this moron on the air trying to defend his opinion or this smart person on the air trying to defend their opinion. The thing about taking calls, and again, I, I was part of a show that stopped taking calls. I started, you, you know, we, we would just do interviews. And, but the thing about taking calls was it, it fed to radio's greatest strength, which is you never knew what was going to happen next. As the host, as the producer, as the listener, you never knew what was coming next. And uh, you, you remember the great old Chris Rock bit about uh, uh, dating a cocaine freak? Says it's exciting because you never know what's going to happen next. It's, that's how sports talk radio is when you're taking calls, man. You just, you're punching up somebody and, you, you, you know, your producer has screened them, but you don't know what's going to happen. There was a spontaneity to it that we all allowed to slip away as we kind of got more into, well, I'm going to talk to this media guy or, you know, this thing. Every show became like, this podcast, which the podcast format's completely different. Obviously, this is what you do. You sit and you talk about stuff with a couple of people and offer up opinions. It was much more fun to me. And one of the reasons I left was that fun had gone away was when you had a lot of different opinions, even if they were crazy, even if I'd end up screaming at people, which I would sometime. And I'd feel like crap afterwards. Like this guy, all he did was call my show and I ended up screaming at him and telling me he's an idiot. You know, <laughs> what, a, what kind of weird world is that? But um <laughs> That's what I miss. I, I miss the most. That's what I think was probably the most fun was the interaction with listeners and with fans and, and, and truly the, the spontaneity of all that and, and how much, how much fun it could be. I remember when the Seahawks won the NFC championship in 2005 and I remember coming home that night and God by now it was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And David Locke had come back to the station and had gone on the air and said, I am staying on the radio until no one wants to talk anymore or until the morning show starts, whichever comes first. And he did it. And, and the next morning at like 5.30, here comes Mitch in to do the morning show. And here's Locke still on the air, full bank of calls, just talking to people about the Seahawks are going to the Super Bowl for the first time ever. Th those kind of things were really fun. It made you feel a, a, a real integral part of the community. Uh, well, that's awesome. Thank you. I, I I'll transition here a little bit. We uh we also got to read this other this other book. I, I guess it's uh an earlier book. Uh, Look at that. Yeah. Well, this is not. It's blurring out. Oh, anyway, 
I'm blurring out. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's about Sounders FC authentic masterpiece. And um, I, I think the subtitle really encapsulates it. And I think it's still true. Mm, yeah. um, the in, inside story of the best franchise launch in American sports history. Yeah. So there, there, there's, there hasn't been anything even close. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the soccer head of, of this group. I mm -hmm. watch an extremely high amount, large amount of soccer, much to my wife's chagrin. And, uh, and, and I don't care where it is. If it's, if it's a Mexican league game, if it's a South American <laughs> game, you know, if, if, if I catch, I'm up really late and I'm watching a, a match out in, in Australia. I don't care if, it, if it's soccer, right. I really want to watch it. Um, and, and, and the other sports I, I still like too. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to, to be honest, um, you know, uh, baseball isn't the same because the, the, the song, the, the, not the songs, the Mariners have kind of leached my love of baseball out of me. Mm -hmm. I haven't missed the playoffs so many times and um, I can't watch NBA with any sort of affinity since, right. you know, the Sonics left. Um, but, but the Sounders bring me a, an extreme amount of joy. And I was just wondering if you had, you know, I, I was astounded that like Adrian Hanover is this businessman doesn't know anything about soccer and he takes over running soccer operations for the minor league Sounders just because his partners want him to. I mean, and then he turns into probably the best general manager in 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 the league in major league soccer as they go from a minor league team to a major league i'm like what i mean we haven't gotten into what the research you did but how did how did you put all that together and and what what were your thoughts about that because i mean that's just an astounding story to me yeah i, I thought it was a great story and uh i uh th that all happened uh, the sounders played um portland uh, and I, I think it was 2012 and I knew I was leaving KJR. I, I had decided I was leaving KJR, but I hadn't told anybody yet. And, um, I, I went to the, to the match and I, I sat in the Emerald city supporters section uh, for the first time. I had a friend who said, you got to sit with us. I said, All right, that sounds like fun. And it was nuts. It was crazy. I, I don't know if I'd ever do it again, but it was, it was really fun. And they beat Portland like a drum that night. And I was leaving the stadium, walking back into my car. And I wasn't hung up on what am I going to do when I leave KJR? I was like, no, I'm leaving KJR. And I'm, I, I don't know. I'll figure something out. But it was, it was, it was one of the coolest things that ever happened to me. And just this, this bolt, this inspiration hit me. I was like, you know what? I could write a book about the Sounders. I know Adrian. Uh, I know Gary Wright. I know Casey Keller. And I mean, I knew these guys. They were friends. They were people I would go to lunch with and talk to about stuff. I, like, I know a lot of the people. I know Todd Liewicki. I know a lot of the people involved in this. And, and I knew enough about the story. I didn't know everything, but I knew enough about it. This is actually a pretty amazing story. And you think about it by then, it's like, well, they've been to the playoffs all four years of their existence. This is 2012, I'm talking. And they're really good. And, and, and Keller's career in Seattle, you, you talk about a guy who wrote the last chapter of his career in brilliant cursive. I mean, my goodness, just so many times that fails where a guy comes home and it just doesn't work. Casey came home and was spectacular and did just, just – really gave the franchise credibility. So I, I don't have an answer as to why Adrian took to this so well, other than I think he's really smart. Uh, I, I think he listens to people around him who are smarter than him. I think he's good at identifying that. I think he's reasonably 
patient. I don't know him well enough to say that, but I think I just look at how they, they don't overreact to things. When things are going bad, they don't freak out. When things are going good, they don't get their chest all puffed out. They, they seem to, and Schmetzer's an extension of that. I mean, they're just, and, and Ziggy was too, to a certain thing. Ziggy gave this franchise a lot of credibility and, and, and most of all set Schmetzer up to be very successful, you know, by, by, by realizing when he came in, that Schmetz really wanted this job. And so he let Schmetz run practices. He, he, he took his, his ideas and his insights and they, they, they complemented each other. Well, it's a fantastic story and all they keep doing is winning. And that book, which I wanted, I wanted that book to be evergreen. I wanted it to be able to sell forever. It wasn't about one season or one thing. It was just, here's how they put this franchise together and I said, to Bill, this is, you could do this for any small business, anything you're ever doing in your life. Look at how they did things. Look at how they listened to people, how they didn't cut anybody out. And, and that's what I wanted the book to be. And, and bless that book's heart. It's the little engine that could. We still sell. I mean, every month I get, I get a nice little check for that book. It, yeah, it's, nice. it's not life-changing money, but it's, there's still people buying that book because it still resonates with people. Sounders fans, I, I, I owe an awful lot to them they, they, because that book – Financially, it was a success, but more than that, I kind of needed the validation. Like, okay, I'm going to write this book. Okay, if it goes out there and it crash lands, like, all right, well, I'm no good at this. But the fact that people bought it and we we had, you know, a, a lot of enthusiasm about it that that gave me then the incentive to write Mr. Townsend and the Polish Prince, which we're in the process of turning into a movie. Uh, it gave me I, I ghost wrote a biography with a guy. I've done this sound or this uh, Huskies book now. A lot of that came because Sounders fans were were so enthusiastic about this book, and they 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 gave me a a, a real shot in the arm, and I'm I'm indebted. That's awesome. I I got one quick question regarding that book, I'm, but it's about the dedication you dedicated it to Molly Conley. How, how did you know Molly Conley? Abraham and I went to the same high school as she did, Bishop Blanchett. I yeah, mean, that, that I remember the story happening and. Seeing that dedication got me emotional. I mean, how how did you know her? Molly uh, Molly lived across the street from me. Molly and her family, okay. and they're just they're delightful people. And uh, and uh, uh, her mom Susan, and uh, and and you know, when that happened, when she was shot and killed, I, I couldn't write for about two or three weeks. I'm in the middle of this book, and I've got a deadline. I I, I just I, I had no interest in it at all. And, uh, and what kind of got me going again, what did I decide, you know what? And I remembered the story of her coming over to my house and trying to sell me I some kind of coupon book that, you know, high school kids do. And, and I just remember, I remember saying that, look, is your soccer team going to be any good? Cause if you're going to stink, I'm not buying this coupon book. I, I can buy a coupon book for somebody who's going to be good. And she was like, I'm pretty, and she, I never forgot, I can hear her saying it. I'm pretty sure we're not going to lose a game which they were an average team. And so of course they lost game. But you know, when you're 14 or 15 and you're an athlete, you know, oh, no, we're not going to lose a game. Are you kidding me? I just, that, that, I just never forget, like sitting on my, my porch with her and just thinking, God, I miss those days when you, when you didn't have the cynicism of knowing that that's not true. And so I, I, I talked to her parents and, uh, and I said, would, would it be okay if I dedicated this book to her? Cause I, I didn't want to do it. And I mean, they were going through an emotional hell that, you know, yeah. no one would understand. Uh, and, and so it's funny. No one's ever brought that up to me, Brian. I'm, I'm glad you did. She was, she's a sweet, great, bright young girl. And, uh, and it was, uh, to, to have her leading off that book is, uh, it, it does my heart good too. Right on. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, this has All been, right. this has been awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Thank you very much, Mr. Gastineau, uh, for being Mr. on our show. Mr. Gastineau. So Mr. we got to go? Mr. Gasman? We, we have to leave? Mr. Gasman? <laughs> do, do we have to go? We have to go? Have we, do, do you guys have one or two more questions? I, I, I've got, I've got one. I can one stay all night. I got okay. okay. I'm going to give each of these gentlemen. More. I got one more question. I'm going to give each, Rich, okay. Brian, yeah. I'll give you each one more question. But yes, okay. we do need to, need to go uh, after that. What, what do you think about uh, tonight's uh, playoff match with the Sounders and their, their chances uh, in the playoffs this year? Let's be honest. And they, they call themselves real Salt Lake. We know they're fake Salt Lake. They've been fake Salt Lake all along. Everyone knows it. Um, I feel like Christopher Walken at Saturday Night Live when the census guy comes back on. I'm, I'm, I'm so bad at guesstimating. I'll say 86 to 1. Does that sound about right for a final score? Uh, I, I'll cast my lot in with the Sounders. You know, this has been a weird year for them, and they're, they're certainly not playing great right now, and you're trying to mix some new, you know, mix some new guys and mix some old guys in who are finally healthy. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be in Schmetz's corner seven days a week. I don't care who they're playing. I don't care what the circumstances are. I would never pick against Brian Schmetzer. And I don't think I've ever actually bet on soccer, but if I did, I'd never bet against him. I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a fool. I watch what that guy does. He, he knows what he's doing. And I realize they're not playing great right now, but, uh, but, but you pick against them at your own risk when, when, when that guy's running the show. Uh, right on uh, i'm gonna ask you just a quick word game about if you give me one or two words to describe a few of your former co-workers uh, <laughs> all right uh let, let's start with this fabulous sports babe uh mercurial uh talented um almost ahead of her time in some ways and and fortunately, still still alive and kicking. She's had a couple of cancer scares over the years, and she's uh, she's still down there in Tampa, screaming at anybody who will listen to her and telling <laughs> people what's what and who's who. Right on, right on. Uh, Kevin Calabro, uh, most talented person I ever worked with, most talented person I was ever close to, um, on a level that is just impossible to explain to people how good he is at what he does. You know, he makes good games great, and he makes great games whatever is above great, and packs that all into a, to a body that has a gigantic heart, and at least that I've seen over the years, little to no ego. He, he's got, uh, he, he's, he's, the, he's the real deal. That's awesome. Um, Bob Rondo. Uh, one of my best friends. You know, that just kind of happened over the course of time, we just got to know each other. A uh, lot of similarities to Kevin. In incredible talent. Uh, never a guy who's yelling, look at me. Uh, another guy who's a terrific role model in terms of his family and how he's handled all that. Uh, and he's a perfectionist. You know, he would get down on himself if there were, if there were things that were done wrong. And uh, just a delightful, delightful guy. Right on. Two, two more real quick. New York Vinny. Uh, if, if, if he's the Keith Richards of sports radio, if he didn't <laughs> exist, we'd have to make him up. We'd have to invent him. Um, <laughs> uh, big heart, uh, a big, uh, big laugh, uh, big fun. Last but not least the Graz gigantic asshole. <laughs> Can I say that? 
Good, good, good. You, you guys, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my my, my brother, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the, the best the best friend I, I ever had in this business, and we still talk all the time. We text like teenagers. We we just go back and we say just stupid stuff and dumb jokes. And I know what makes him laugh, and he knows what makes me laugh. And uh, my career and what happened to me never would have happened at the level it did if it hadn't been for Dave. And and uh, it's I, I uh, uh, working with him by far the most fun 14 years I had in the business. And, and if, and, you know, things just don't always work that you can keep going together. And I think both of us were a little ready for a break when he decided to go over to Cairo and do his thing. But I think if things have been different, if for whatever reason he had stayed, there's a chance we might still be doing it. We, we, we sure loved being on the air together and, uh, and, and we still love talking to each other and, and, uh, and, and having fun and laughing. And uh, uh, he's a terrific, terrific guy. Right awesome. on, Thank right you. on. Thank you, Gasman or Mr. Gastino or Mr. Gaston. Whichever I, I, you I wanted to see if you'd ask me about Mitch so I could say, has he stopped badgering you about subscribing to his podcast yet? <laughs> Good that was an uncomfortable thing to listen yeah. to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't want to ask that, but thank you. <laughs> you can listen without subscribing. <laughs> <laughs> but you but how would people get in contact with you? Let the let's uh let's let's go that way because you I'm, have your gas man on tw Twitter and, and Facebook, so I'm easy to find there at Gasman206 on Twitter, and I think it's just Mike Gasman. Gastino or Gasman on Facebook. Uh, email is gas at gasman206.com. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it, like, that's what I miss the most is the interaction with fans and, and, and all that uh, over the years. And, and people have been so generous with their, their comments about the books I've done. And, you know, I, I made a weird transition. You know, a lot of writers become broadcasters because frankly, it's easier and it pays more. <laughs> There's one numbskull I know who said, I got a pretty good paying broadcast job. I'm going to quit that and become a writer and work harder and make less money. And that's me. <laughs> so, but good, good but, move. But, but gas, man, these, these books are going to last. That's yeah. right. I, agree. I, I actually, I actually went on a search. I read your books and I was like, I got to get these for my dad. And I started looking around for other books kind of in a similar vein about Seattle and Western Washington sports. And it is a barren desert. So the work you do is, is really, really important. Um, and Thanks. It, it, it brought me a lot of joy reliving, um, you know, some, some good times from when I was much, much younger. And um, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to anything you put out uh, in the future. Yeah, I appreciate that. And don't don't sleep on that. Uh, that the, the smallest of the books I've done, which is Mr. Townsend and the Polish Prince, because we're, we're going to get that made into a movie. That's yeah. going to happen. And I'm going to come back on this podcast and I'm, I'm going to charge you because I'll be a huge Hollywood guy. at that point. I'll have no time for people like you. So be ready. Save your, save your nickels for that one. We will. No. Okay. And, and a lot, just, to, Thanks, guys. just to echo what Rich said. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, there's so few books out there. I mean, there are some, I've read bow down to Willingham. That was pretty good. Um, but preserving history is important. And I, I'm glad that uh, there's people like you. Uh, I'm in bow down to Willingham, aren't I? Don't they, don't they hammer me a little bit for not getting him fired? <laughs> like it was my job to get Tyrone Willingham fired. <laughs> didn't get him fired. Yeah, funny enough, the UW doesn't call me before they make personnel decisions. But, uh, I, I think, yeah, it's funny. Now people are like, Oh, this is like the Willingham years. I'm like, boy, people's memories no, are no, short no. because it's this not. isn't anything at all. <laughs> this doesn't feel like an excavation project. It feels like whoever they bring in may be able to get it turned around pretty quick. 
you know, the Willie Anthony, it's like, man, this is going to take a while. And God bless Sark. I know, I know people are mad at how he left, and certainly he's had a star-crossed run since then. I'm not sure if he's going to survive one year at Texas. But he <laughs> came in and did a hell of a job in getting this program back to a you Remember, supposedly they talked to Chris Peterson after 08. Peterson's no moron. He's like, I'm not coming in here and taking that job now. <laughs> By the time Sark was done, he's like, okay, now it's at a level where maybe I can come in and, and, and make yeah, a difference. So exactly. Sark, Sark should not be uh, forgotten or discounted in Husky lore. He, he took over a program that was about as low to bottom as you can get and, and, and got him back to a respectable level. So good for him. Awesome. Well, this is the time of the show where uh, we like to do our shout outs. We like to uh, end on a positive note. Brian, go ahead and get us started and show us how it's done. Uh, being Apple Cup week uh, Giving a shout out to my Wazoo Cougs. I'm looking forward to this week. There've been a lot of drama for both schools, but I think Wazoo should be able to take it this week. And then uh, a few hours ago, former Wazoo running back Derek Sparks, who is who's a big name on this side of the mountains, he passed away of cancer. And I just oh wow, yeah. Uh, rest in peace to him, and prayers out, go out to his family. So, all right, Rich, over to you. Well. Um... That, that's a that, that's a bit of a, a downer there, uh, Brian. Um, <laughs> and hard to hard to follow up. Um, my, my shout out is to um, basically just to the to the whole Sounders organization that's brought me so much joy over 13 years, um, and of consistency and fun, and I mean really just branding themselves forever into the Seattle sports uh, you know scene. In, in a way that, that no other team, I think, really, really has. So um, I'm I'm stoked for, uh, you know, 90 minutes from now when, when kickoff happens. Excellent. And my shout outs to Elise Woodward. Uh, she got to hey. she got to do the play by play again. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe they can make this a little bit more permanent. Get her get her into that booth a little bit more often. And for you, gas man, any shout outs? Well, was it? I was going to do at least because I, I love her. No, I, 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 how about at least? Jeez, I mean, is, is there anything this woman can't do? I've been, I've been, I've been yeah. teased her on Twitter. It's like, geez, they just keep throwing assignments at her. She's unbelievably versed on what a, what a terrific, uh, terrific broadcaster. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Sounders fans earlier. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Husky fans. It's been very similar with this book. And again, I, 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 I love writing this stuff, but I don't write it so I can sit on my porch and read it myself. I want people to go out and buy it and read it and enjoy it. And, Husky fans have been very generous with their praise, and it's kind of the same thing. You know, you you, you want and you need that feedback. It it fuels your next uh, your next idea and your next project. So I'll I'll shout out to Husky fans. I know there's and, and the Cougar fans as well. I'll shout out to the Apple Cup. It's my it's one of my favorite weekends of the year. Every year, doesn't even matter what the teams are. It's more fun when both teams are good and there's a lot to play for. The Cougs certainly have got some momentum and they're trying to get to a better bowl game. The Huskies are just trying to finish the season with one last piece of good news. Friday will be fun. I'll guarantee yeah, it because yeah. this is one of the most fun rivalries in sports. So shout out to Husky fans for the book and to Apple Cup fans for the game on uh, Friday. Right on. Well, thank you for everybody for joining us. Our guest today was Mike, the gas man, Gastineau. And on behalf of Brian Solak and Richard Michelson, my name is Abraham DeWeese. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>